Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to inspire you to follow Christ, and to convict you to lead a consecrated life. Although sometimes lumped in with Enlightenment rationalism, the biblical Unitarian movement came to prominence right from the start of the Reformation. Essentially, as soon as Bible translations started getting into the hands of regular people, a great many Catholic doctrines came under scrutiny, including the doctrine of the Trinity. In this episode, you'll learn about the three major biblical Unitarian trailblazers of the 16th century, including Claude of Savoy, Adam Pastor, and Michael Servetus. These three men did not give definitive shape to the larger groups that soon emerged, but they tread along the path, preparing the way for those who would come after. Here now is Lecture 5 of my class 500 from Martin Luther to Joel Osteen, Episode 120, Biblical Unitarian Trailblazers of the 16th Century. All right, tonight we're talking about Unitarian Trailblazers. And so I wanted to say a few words about the word Unitarian just in the beginning here. Typically, when people today use this word, they're talking about the UUs, the Unitarian Universalists. They're a group of post-Christians, some of them are Christians, some of them are non-Christians, that are around today and Many times when you hear the word Unitarian used today, it's a reference to this group of people. I'm going to talk about the UUs, the Unitarian Universalists, later, because they don't come about until hundreds of years later, and mostly in America. When I use the word Unitarian, especially tonight, I'm talking about people that believe in the Bible. And so usually we would use the phrase today, Biblical Unitarian, to distinguish somebody who believes God is one as opposed to three in one, and somebody who doesn't really believe the Bible is authoritative, which is a Unitarian Universalist. So the, the Unitarians I speak of tonight are biblical Unitarians. The subject up for question is not whether or not the Bible is authoritative or accurate. It's whether or not the Bible teaches that God is one or God is three in one. We're going to start out with Claude of Savoy, Adam Pastor, and Michael Servetus. These three are trailblazers. And a trailblazer is not someone who defines the final version of something. It's somebody that goes out into the woods and cuts away some of the brush, saws down some of the trees, maybe makes some of the bridges so that people can start going down that path. But none of these three give the final form to the Unitarianism of the 1500s. They're just trailblazers. There are probably other people I could include, but part of the problem, and and this is a difficulty I've had in researching this subject for tonight, is that there's not much written about these people except for in a few sources, and those few sources are, are more often than not difficult to work with. A lot of them focus on Michael Servetus, who is the last person, but he, he doesn't quite really represent the movement we're talking about. So after the break, I'm going to talk, talk to you about the movement that comes after these three people. When it comes to the Reformation, 
there are really two things. One is the magisterial reformation. And that is the movement begun by Martin Luther in Germany, Ulrich Zwingli in what country? Switzerland, very good, and also John Calvin in a different canton of Switzerland. And so Martin Luther is in the German city of Wittenberg, and Ulrich Zwingli is in the Swiss city of Zurich, and John Calvin is in the Swiss city of Geneva. And a magist what we call this the magisterial reformation because they tried to work with the magistrates, the government. Luther was protected by Frederick of Saxony. He was protected by a political figure that guaranteed his safety. Ulrich Zwingli, if you recall, got in these debates and so on, and he favored the government of Zurich. With John Calvin, we saw that when he came to Geneva, at least a second time, he had a written contract with the government that specifically allowed him to have authority in certain areas. And so this is why we call it the Magisterial Reformation. And usually when people use the word reformed or reformation, this is what they're referring to. What we've been talking about last time with the Anabaptists and this time with the Evangelical Rationalists is the Radical Reformation. So there are three wings of this that are, we typically delineate. The Anabaptists, the Evangelical Rationalists, and the Spiritualists. Last time we looked at the Anabaptists. These were people who were called rebaptizers because they rejected infant baptism. But that wasn't their main focus. Their main focus was on following Jesus as literally as they could possibly uh, figure out a way to do in their society. The uh, examples of Anabaptists were Conrad Grable, Felix Mons, and George Blaurock, and Michael Sattler who had his tongue cut out and was roasted on a ladder. We saw that last time, just some really disgusting treatment. And uh, quite a few others that we discussed. Uh, the last was Menno Simons, who founded the group today called the Mennonites. Those are all examples of Anabaptists. The evangelical rationalists are people who took a look at what was going on and had a much more theological interest in things. The Anabaptists tended not to produce theologians. They tended to attract people from the trades and to focus very much on lifestyle and community, oftentimes sharing all their possessions, living in community together. Whereas the evangelical rationalists, mostly coming out of northern Italy, were much more academically engaged. They were interested in, in figuring out how everything works, and more often than not, for that reason, they became non-Trinitarian. Uh, so another name for the evangelical rationalists are Socinians. Spiritualists were those who focused not on lifestyle, did not focus as an obedience to Christ, hardcore obedience to Christ. They didn't, like the Anabaptists, they didn't focus on the theologizing so much and uh, debating the Trinity. They focused on the, the spiritual aspects, the inner voice of the Holy Spirit and oftentimes they would reject anything physical at all, including baptism and communion, because they felt that these things were just provisional. They were only there when the church was young, and now we've matured beyond that, and so we are only focusing on the inner voice, and sometimes they would be accused of 
putting the prophetic inner voice of God above the scriptures by people in these other groups. So really what we have is you have the Catholics, the medieval Catholicism, which is like most everybody, right? And then you have the, the magisterial reformation that's starting to, to, to spread and bubble up in certain cities, in certain pockets. And those ideas are, are starting to spread around and that's starting to grow. And then you've got these three other groups that make up what's called the radical reformation. And they're the ones that did not want to stop with just getting rid of the Pope, the Mass, the seven sacraments. But they wanted to also get rid of infant baptism uh, and, and a number of other things and go into just a, a biblical form of Christianity. At least that's the case for the Anabaptists and the Evangelical Rationalists. The Spiritualists, as I've already described, are more focused on the uh, inner voice of the Spirit. I'm not going to speak very much about the spiritualists, but tonight we're looking at the evangelical rationalists. So I have a quote for you about the evangelical rationalists, and it's also in your notes. It said, this is from George Hunston Williams. He says, The evangelical rationalists, with their sober philological adhesion to the biblical text, were never tumultuous iconoclasts like many Puritans in Switzerland, the Netherlands, England, and Scotland. But in attacking the icons of the Trinity theologically, they intended to make clear their devotion to the one eternal God of Israel, for I the same. And so the evangelical rationalists, they focused on philological, which is another way to say linguistic. They, they, these are the people that are learning Hebrew. These are the people learning Greek more often than not. That are delving into the languages, making very close scrutiny of the Bible in order to figure out what it really says. And the other thing they're doing is they're dealing with, with the biblical text and they're interested in, in arguing about the Bible. That's what they want to do. They want to argue about it in a constructive manner with others and figure out what it really says because we've been wrong about so much, so who's to say there's not more? And usually the first thing that went out with this group was the doctrine of the Trinity because it's, it's just not substantiated in the Bible. Let's start by looking at... William Farrell. This guy was actually a colleague of Claude of Savoy. Claude of Savoy is our first guy up. We're going to do three guys. Claude of Savoy, Adam Pastor, Michael Servetus. And so Claude of Savoy was a colleague of this William Farrell in uh, his early career. We don't know that much about Claude of Savoy. He was probably born in the late 1400s, and he probably died sometime after 1550. So we, we don't have a firm date for his birth or his death. We know he was from France. A name like Claude kind of gives that away. And we know that in 1534 he was banished from Basel and Bern, two of the areas in Switzerland. And he was also banished from Constance for the statement, I do not believe that three persons are one God. That got him banished from Constance. In 1534, this man, Henry Bullinger, who had taken over for Zwingli, wrote a defense of the dual nature doctrine of Christ. If you, if you recall, the dual nature doctrine of Christ is the theory that Jesus is both fully God and fully human at the same time. And that was something that Henry Bullinger wrote against Claude of Savoy. So from that, we infer that Claude of Savoy was saying Jesus isn't God and man, he's just man. 
And so that happens in 1534. He gets interrogated quite a bit. He's an itinerant preacher, Claude. He travels from town to town, and he's questioning the doctrine of the Trinity in the early 1500s, 1530s and after that. I have a lengthy quote for you written by a man named Martin Frecht in Ulm, Germany, that I want to share because it describes what Claude actually believed. Okay, so this is a bit lengthy, but uh, I think it'll be worth, worth our consideration. He writes, The Lord thy God is one. Whence then are there two others? <laughs> Isn't that a great opening line? The Lord thy God is one. That's what the Bible says. Where do we get these other two from? Particularly since it is written, Who hath been his counselor? That man alone whom Mary conceived and brought forth is called Jesus, which is proved, Behold, thou wilt conceive and bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus. And he will be called Great and the Son of the Most High. Who therefore is so holy, so great, who is called the Son of God, but he who was conceived in the womb of the virgin and born. So he does believe in the virgin birth. He does believe that Jesus is called the Son of God because of that miracle in the womb of Mary. Therefore, a Christian should acknowledge none other to be the Son of God than him whom Scripture so declares. Behold, the same man, the firstborn of Mary, is called the Savior and not some divinity of Christ. He is declared to have saved us by his blood, not by his divinity. For this reason he himself says of himself, who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. He does not say, he who eats my deity. Therefore I am not held to eat the deity of Christ, but rather his flesh and to drink his blood. You can kind of see why this guy got kicked out of city after city. He's pretty good at arguing his case. They blaspheme therefore who say of the virgin that she is the mother of God. For she did not bear God, but Christ. If heaven and earth cannot contain God, how much less the womb of a woman? It's hard to argue against that, isn't it? In any case, if Jesus were thus divided into God and man, the virgin would not be the mother of Christ, but only of a part of him. Observe also this expression, this day I have begotten thee, Psalm 2, 7, and so on, which indicates a definite time. He was not therefore begotten eternally of the Father as they falsely imagine. But when he came the fullness of time, he sent his Son, made of a woman. Therefore he is precisely called the Son of God, who is made of woman. The Father gives testimony concerning him. This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. Concerning whom is this said, unless it is about him who had been baptized? For surely the divinity of Christ is not said to have been baptized, but only the man was shown forth. So he's, he's trying to indicate that sonship of Jesus is related to his, his humanity, that there's not a divine explanation for the sonship of Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In that he is said to be a lamb, nothing of deity is included, but exactly what is appropriate for sacrifice. It is also sufficiently shown by the declaration he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on the seed of Abraham, that the Father, wishing to reconcile the world to himself, willed to do this by a creature and by blood, and not by any divinity. 
But the Father was in him through the plenitude of the Spirit, reconciling himself to the world. It is not said that he assumed some divinity of the Son, which had existed from eternity, but only the seed of Abraham. This is, gets interesting right here. I confess, however, that Jesus Christ is God in that manner in which he himself said that he was. If he, in John 10.35, called those gods to whom the word of God came, how much more is he God, whom the Father sanctified, who received the Holy Spirit above his fellows, so that all might receive it through him from the Father? I believe in God, the Father, Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and that he alone was from eternity, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin, and at a given time, but therefore precisely not from eternity. You see, his focus is on Jesus as being a human and Jesus as having a beginning. The Son is having a beginning. Therefore, I believe also in the Spirit, but not in God the Holy Spirit. In short, I do not believe that there that three persons are one God, but I know that they are three men. Three persons are three men and not one God. And so that's his case there. So that's Claude of Savoy. In 1535, he visited a certain gentleman in a town called Wittenberg, a man named Martin Luther, and tried to teach him that the Trinity was wrong. If you want to make a big difference in the world, and the whole world is looking to Wittenberg and this university professor ex-monk who married an ex-nun and who was challenging everything, calling the Pope an Antichrist and not getting burned at the stake for it, you go see Martin Luther. And so in 1535, he stayed a month in Wittenberg and tried to convert Luther to his monotheism. It didn't work, but he tried. In 1536 to 39, he served as a preacher in a place called Thonon, which is on Lake Geneva. It's on the same lake as the city of Geneva that John Calvin would be in. In that town, Claude won such a following that they convened a synod. And in 1537, they forced him to recant on pain of banishment. In 1550, we find him preaching in a city called Memmingen, making many converts. And he was impoverished and limping by then from all his travels, getting kicked out city after city after city after city, teaching this idea that God is one instead of three in one. I have another quote for you by Caspar Schwenkfield, who is the, one of the spiritualist guys. He took up Claude's Unitarian inference from 4th Ezra. Now, I know in our Bibles we don't have 4th Ezra, but in their Bibles, in the Catholic Bible, they did have this verse. But anyhow, this is what it says. Thus did I consider all these things, and they were all made through me alone and through none other. By me also they shall be ended, and by none other. For from this text, Claude, this is again a quote from George Williams uh, in his book, The Radical Reformation, he says that Claude from this text had inferred that the one and only God of Israel had Christ in his mind or in his will, and thus that the word or work or will was indeed with God from the beginning, but only as intention to be implemented at the beginning of the life of Jesus or perhaps at the beginning of his ministry after baptism. So this is the idea that Christ existed with God in the beginning in his mind, but not as a separate being. 
and this is something that Claude of Savoy taught, so far as we can tell. The problem is, we don't, we don't have any of his books, and what we do have is a quote from his enemies to refute him. And uh, I, I went to look him up in Wikipedia, and he didn't even exist. I went to look on Google for a picture of him or a painting, and it doesn't exist. <laughs> so we have, we have someone who is very obscure, but who was a fiery preacher from town to town for decades in the middle of the 1500s, early to mid-1500s, and he preached the one God tirelessly. So I call him a trailblazer. I don't know to what degree his, his group survived or formed into other groups. I don't know. I just know that he is one of these trailblazers of the Unitarian faith. Next up, we have Adam Pastor, born in 1510. We're not sure when he died, around 1560 is a guess. He had been a priest prior to his conversion, and in 1533, he joined the Anabaptists. He joined with Menno Simons, Adam Pastor. So he, he joined that group, and he in, attended a debate with Menno and a guy named Melchior Hoffman that we talked about before, who uh, was this sort of radical prophet who predicted the end of the world, and then it didn't happen, and then he ended up in jail, and he died in jail, but he wrote a lot of letters, and the whole Munster debacle is really his fault because um, <laughs> they were his followers that, that got into that mess. But anyhow, Adam Pastor was there at a debate with Menno Simons and this Melchior Hoffman, and he was siding with Menno in the debate on the sacraments. However, in his own heart, in his own study, he had come to believe different things than Menno Simons about Jesus. And so he did not believe that Christ existed before coming into the world, and he believed that Christ was divine only in the sense that God dwelt in him. And he believed that Christ was only human, though he bore God's word. In 1543, he was ordained an elder by Menno Simons, and he was actively preaching in Dusseldorf until Menno Simons found out about Adam Pastor's beliefs, at which time he called him forth, and the guy who actually got more involved with this was named Dirk Phillips. And Dirk Phillips and Menno Simons excommunicated Adam Pastor for three reasons. One, his views on Christ. Two, he wasn't rigorous enough on the ban. Does anybody remember what the ban was? It's when somebody falls into sin, you, you kick them out of the church, and then nobody else is allowed to talk to them. So Adam Pastor wasn't as strict as the rest of them were on that doctrine. And then the third was, he was not as strong on separation from the state. What we come to see with the Mennonites, especially early on, is complete separation, where they, they don't even want to have interaction at all with anybody outside of their group, almost like a, a communal uh, style of living. And he wasn't as strong as them on that. So Menno Simons kicked him out. It was really Dirk Phillips who kicked him out, but Menno Simons agreed with it. In 1552... He came back, so that was 47, he got kicked out. In 1552, which is five years later, he came back, strengthened in his beliefs about who Jesus was, and he debated Menno Simons publicly at Lubeck on the subject of the deity of Christ. And in 1552, he also published his book called uh, The Difference Between Correct and False Doctrine, Unterscheid Tuschen Rechte und Falsche Lehre. Thirteen doctrinal points he had in his book. Section 1 was a list of all these Bible verses that say God is one, with only a few little comments here and there. 
Section 2 argued that Jesus took Adamic flesh from Mary, and he was miraculously conceived as the Son of God, and that God gave all power and glory to Christ. We don't, again, like Claude of Savoy, we don't know much else about Adam Pastor. I just, I've just told you everything I know about him. It took like five minutes. Maybe it felt like 20 minutes, but it only really took about five minutes. And we, we don't know to what degree his influence carried on. Some people suspect that his ideas went upstream to Poland and influenced uh, some people up there who came to question the Trinity as well. We'll look at them after the break as well, but that's all I have to say about him. Now, the man about which we know the most and is the most controversial is Michael Servetus. So I'd like to spend the rest of our time before the break on Michael Servetus. He was born in either 1509 or 1511, and he died in 1553. We know the exact date of his death, October 27th, 1553. And we know quite a bit about Michael Servetus. In fact, I wanted to show you this book here. There are a number of books that are out on Michael Servetus. This is kind of, at this point, a bit of a classic. Uh, it's called Out of the Flames by the Goldstones, Lawrence and Nancy. And it is a very well-written narrative that kind of dramatizes, yet stay, tries to stay as true as possible to the history, the whole uh, life of Michael Servetus. And then it also traces the life of his book and how his book survived to today. And uh, how remarkable that is, because there are only a couple of them that survived the burning. And ironically, one of them was John Calvin's copy, and how that book uh, still exists today. Here, here's another book by a guy named Alan Iyer. This is just in case you want to go a little deeper. It's called The Protesters. And some of the information in there is, I think, a little questionable. I think you, you want to maybe look into it a little bit more. Uh, but it's very easy to read. <laughs> That's the benefit of it. Here's another one I won't show you because it's got nothing on it, really. <laughs> on the side, though, it says, Sassinianism in Poland. It's a, a book by, uh, it was translated by Earl Wilbur. Uh, Stanislas Kot is the author of it. It was written in Polish and translated by Earl Morse Wilbur, who also wrote this book, which is A History of Unitarianism, is published by Harvard University Press in 1945. Uh, so that's a history of this movement going way back. So there, there are quite a few books about this. About Michael Servetus, there's, there's a whole bunch of other books. I'm going to give you what I've got here. And if you want to look into it deeper, here's three books that you can buy if you want to research it more. And there are many others besides, much thicker ones, just on Michael Servetus if you want. Anyhow, he, he grew up in uh, Aragon, Spain. He was, he, he was born in Aragon, Spain, uh, which I believe is the same town as Catherine, who became Henry VIII's first wife. If you ever heard of Catherine of Aragon, uh, Servetus was also from Aragon. We'll, we'll talk about King Henry VIII and his crazy wives. And Actually, he was crazy. I think his wives were probably normal. Um, and uh, get into all that later. But um, Servetus was from there. He was born around 1511, and something interesting had happened in Spain. In 1492, right about the time somebody, some Italian, sailed the ocean blue, right? <laughs> Columbus was sent by Queen Isabel, the Spanish queen, to America, right? Well, to India, but he ended up in the West Indies, right? And so anyhow, in 1492, another thing happened in Spain, which is Isabella kicked all the Jews and the Muslims out. She said, I don't want you people in my kingdom, and she kicked them all out of Spain. 
However, before that, there was uh, a mass conversion of Jews to Christianity. And so there was a lot of Jewish influence around the area of, of Spain. And this is kind of interesting because Servetus, pretty early on, seems to know Hebrew. So the question is, well, where did he... You don't just, like, pick up Hebrew in the air. It's not like a, the flu, you know. I mean, Hebrew has to be studied. It has to be studied. You know, you really have to memorize those, those words and the grammar and everything else. And so there's some speculation that maybe he had a Jewish relative or neighbor or somebody that was teaching him these things. And the other thing that Jews and Muslims really don't like is the doctrine of the Trinity, which is something else that Servetus comes out pretty early uh, not believing in. But anyhow, I'm getting ahead of myself. He was absolutely a genius, probably one of the few men in the world that could rival John Calvin in his genius. They were both absolutely brilliant people that just picked up language after language after language. He knew his Spanish, he knew Latin, Greek, Hebrew, French. Uh, he operated for a time throughout Germany. He said his German wasn't that good, but he had enough to get by. It's not like he just knew Latin a little bit. He became an editor of certain works in Latin and in Greek. And he was a very intelligent man. Early on in 1528 to 1529, he was sent to the University of Toulouse to study law. While he's at the University of Toulouse, people start making fun of him and taunting him as being a heretic. And this caused him to research the doctrine of the Trinity because he wanted to prove it at which point he discovered it wasn't in the Bible. It wasn't clearly taught or explained in the Bible. And then something remarkable happened, something very similar to what happened to Martin Luther. I don't know if I ever told you the story about how Martin Luther went to Rome as a pilgrim, and he traveled around, and he went to all the sites. And there's this one special place where if you climb up the stairs, and at every step you say a prayer until you get to the top, then your, your dearly departed loved ones will get out of purgatory early. And Martin Luther is climbing up the steps on his hands and his knees. And suddenly, at some point on those steps, it just hits him like, what if this is all bogus? <laughs> and it was really nothing, nothing less than a trip to the center of Roman Catholic Christianity, to Rome, that made Martin Luther doubt more than anything else that Roman Catholicism was legitimate. So it was with Michael Servetus. In 1529, he, his patron, John of Quintana, took him to the coronation of Emperor Charles V at Bologna as an aide. So Michael Servetus is a young man. He's there as an aide, and he's going to see the coronation of the emperor, Emperor Charles V. And the festiv festivities were excessively lavish. The emperor made his way through Italy. Now, the emperor had three years earlier sacked Rome, conquered it. And so this was sort of a way for the Pope and the Emperor to say, hey, we're, we're on the same team here, even though the Emperor just like conquered the Pope and uh, forced, forced him to surrender. But in, in 1530, now it's time to put the differences aside, and we need to, to present a strong, unified front as the papal leader and as the governmental leader. Pope and emperor hand in hand. They constructed a triumphal arch that uh, the pope entered un under that had a an engraving in it of Samuel the prophet anointing David the king. 
And so here, here is another Samuel, a new Samuel, except it's Pope Clement. And he's going to anoint Emperor Charles V. And when Charles comes in, he passes all these statues of these great kings that are made just for this festivity in Bologna. He passes a statue of Constantine, one of Charlemagne, one of Sigismund, and one of Ferdinand, famous people in their, in their time and in their ancestry. And so the emperor came before the pope and kneeled before him and was crowned and anointed and received the chalice. And Servetus, when he saw all the pomp, when he saw all the grandeur, it shocked him. It just really blew him away. And when he saw Charles humble himself before the Pope, Clement, here's a picture of Pope Clement, or the Pope had the triple crown, and he was carried by four cardinals on foot. He was seated beneath a golden canopy on a golden chair, and he received Charles' kiss on the hand. Servetus just couldn't take it. He couldn't take it. It was just too much for him. So I want to read to you a quote by Michael Servetus about this encounter. As concerning Christ, it is said, on their hands they will bear thee up. Remember, who said that? Satan said that, right? Satan said, on their hands, throw yourself down. On their hands, they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone, right? So the Pope, for this reason, has himself carried by others. He does not touch the ground with his feet, lest his holiness be polluted. This is sarcasm, just to be clear. To be carried on the shoulders of men and thus adorned, to make himself to be adorned on earth as God, which no one so impious has dared to be from the foundations of the world. With these very eyes, we have seen him borne in pomp on the necks of princes, making with his hand the sign of the cross, and adored in the open streets by all the people on bended knees, so that those who were able to kiss his feet or slippers counted themselves more fortunate than the rest, and declared that they had obtained many indulgences, and that on his account the infernal pains would be remitted for many years. O vilest of all beasts, most brazen of harlots." This is the man he was talking about, Pope Clement. So Michael Servetus, as you can see, had a, had a way with words. And he had an opinion. And he was deconverted from Catholicism by seeing Catholicism up close as it interacted with the state and the government. In 1531, he came to Strasbourg. And he was putting out this book that he had written as a young man called De Trinitatis Erebus, which means On the Errors of the Trinity. This is the title page of that book. And there was a, a famous monk named Augustine about 1,000 years, 1,100 years earlier, who had written a book called De Trinitate on the Trinity. And so this is called De Trinitate, but on the errors of the Trinity. So he slipped in that word errors. So instead of writing it on the Trinity, it's on the errors of the Trinity. Uh, so, sort of a very provocative title because Augustine was accepted by everyone, especially Luther and John Calvin, who both really had very similar ideas to Augustine. And so Servetus is challenging the whole system here. And he goes in 1531 to Strasbourg, and he, and he ends up in a little town outside of Strasbourg, and he gets the book printed. Now, Servetus, has an, he, he comes from a good family, so he's got education and he's got some finances. 
And so he publishes the book on his own money. And his, his goal is not really to reject the Trinity, but to correct it. He believes in the Father. He believes in the Son. He believes in the Holy Spirit. He just doesn't believe in the formula and how, how it was being passed down. And so he focused on the errors of the Trinity and trying to straighten out what the doctrine of the Trinity really was. He taught that, this is according to George Williams, he taught that Jesus was the natural Son of God, that he was begotten, not eternally, but in a mysterious way through divine insemination of the Virgin. The Spirit was there thought of as a seed of God rather than as a distinct person. And the other, so it's seven books, this, this book on the errors of the Trinity, it's seven books long, or what we would call chapters. And the first one does that. And the other six, he attacks Luther because he thinks Luther's gone too far on his justification by faith doctrine. That, he's, that if people listen to what Luther's saying, they'll stop trying to live rightly. And they'll just believe that they're saved and they won't do anything. And so Servetus is hammering against Luther in the sort of very typical academic way of the time, which was a bit rude, but uh, really got his point, point across. Uh, and so naturally, the town council of Strasbourg, the city where he was, ordered that he leave or be punished. He went to see another gentleman, a guy named Oikolampadius, if I said that right. And, he, and this guy, instead of taking him in, uh, alerts the government, and he's kicked out again. In 1532, Michael Servetus writes another book. The first book was written in 1531. It was not received well. So he came out with a second book in 1532, a year later. He's like, all right, they misunderstood me. This will clear it all up. And it was called, what was it called? Dialogues on the Trinity. He used the same press in Hagenau, and he softened some of his statements about justification without undermining his concern. And he tried to use more traditional language for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He tried to soften it up a little bit. And he's thinking, all right, guys, let's just relax. Let's just think about this. And that didn't work at all. Instead, he was once again kicked out, and he was in trouble in Spain. He couldn't go back home because the Spanish Inquisition wanted him. And by age 20, he was hunted in Spain, banished from Strasbourg and Basel, and severely criticized in Wittenberg. And then I have a quote for you directly from the man himself. And he says, When I began, such was the blindness of the world that I was sought up and down, to be snatched to my death. Terrified on this account and fleeing into exile for many years, I lurked among strangers in sore grief of mind. Knowing that I was young, powerless, and without polish of style, I almost gave up the whole cause, for I was not yet sufficiently trained. O most clement Jesus, I invoke thee again as divine witness that on this account I delayed, and also because of the imminent persecution so that with Jonah, I longed rather to flee to the sea or to one of the new isles. You know what the new isles was a reference to? America, which had just been discovered. It's amazing how all this stuff all intertwines. But instead of fleeing to the sea or fleeing to America, what he did is he went to France. And he went to the University of Paris, and he studied medicine and he became a doctor. What? <laughs> I thought this guy was a theologian. I thought he was a Hebrew expert. I thought he was interested in the Bible. What do you mean he can just go study at the University of Paris 
one of the very finest universities uh, of the time and, and to this day, uh, and become a, a, a doctor. Not only because does he become a doctor, he is the first person in the history of humanity to discover pulmonary circulation, how the oxygen and the blood mixes in the lungs. And this he was led to by thinking about the soul and the spirit, and the word for spirit is like breath, and the soul is in the blood, in the, in the scripture. And so he's coming at it from a scriptural basis, and he makes this discovery. Of course, he's under a different name, Dr. Villanovanus, or Villanueva, depending on if you want the Latin or the French name. He also has to make money and support himself. So he starts editing geographical, scientific, and biblical texts for a fee. He becomes an editor and helps uh, get these things printed. Like I said before, he's a polymath. He, he, he learns many things, right? He's an expert in mathematics, in astronomy, in meteorology, in geography, anatomy, medicine, pharmacology. He's, his first college was studying law, so that you have jurisprudence. Translation, he's one of the best translators of his time. Poetry, Bible, and theology. He published a pharmacological treatise that went through several lucrative editions. He's supporting himself by doing these other sort of like hobbies while he's a doctor, while he's really the arch enemy of the Trinity in hiding in France as a Spaniard. He practiced medicine in Lyon, Avignon, Charlieu, and Vienne. In 1542, he published a one-volume edition of the Bible. In 1545, he published a seven-volume Pagnini Bible. So this is a Bible translated by a gentleman named Pagnini, Santi Pagnini, in Italian. And in 1527, this guy had translated the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into Latin. And he was the first one to use verse numbers ever, this Pagnini guy. And so Servetus is, is publishing this guy's book for money. He's trying to make money. Uh, these aren't the same verse numbers that we end up with. Somebody else comes up with different verse numbers a little later on, but it's just famous for that reason. Here's another quote for you. He enjoyed a tranquil and respected life, engaging in covert theological speculation and writing, but outwardly conforming to the Roman church. So where does he go to church on Sunday? He goes to the Roman Catholic Church. Why? Because he's in France. Because in France, that's all there is. We're going to talk about France later, but that's just what he did. He would later justify his Nicodemism by appealing to the willingness of Paul himself to conform to outward Jewish practices in the temple when in Jerusalem. Nicodemus came to Jesus in the middle of the day. No, he came at night. And he checked Jesus out, and then he went back, and he continued to be in the Sanhedrin. He didn't join the followers of Jesus. Even after Jesus died, you know, he, he, he went, and he, and he prepared the body, and he, and he helped bury the body. That's a Nicodemism. It's like you're a closet, you know, whatever. And in Servetus' case, he was a closet Unitarian. So anyhow, I've I got to kind of cruise through the rest of this here, and this is where it gets exciting anyhow. So John Calvin is this incredible person that's writing all these people all over the world, and he's got this city in Geneva that he's trying to really get the Reformation cooking in. So Michael Servetus decides he's going to start a friend. He, he has a mutual friend with John Calvin. He decides to start writing him. And they begin writing, and uh, he starts reading John Calvin's writings, and he really likes some of it, and some of it he really dislikes. And so in 1546, he sent Calvin a draft of his new book, that he was writing called The Restitution of Christianity. 
And it was unfinished at that time, and he just sent it to Calvin to see what Calvin thought about it, as a scholar to a scholar. He also calls Calvin a Trinitarius, which is our English word Trinitarian. Before that, people who didn't believe in the Trinity would be called Trinitarians. After Servetus, those who do believe in it are called Trinitarians. Kind of a funny thing. Servetus ended up sending Calvin 30 letters over the years. And Calvin sent him back letters. And Calvin at one point sent him the Institutes of the Christian Religion. In Latin, that's Institutio of the Christian Religion. In Latin, Servetus' book is called Restitutio. So Calvin is sending the Institutes. He's sending the Restitutes, you know, the, the restoring of the Institutes back to what they should be. Uh, kind of interesting how they're playing off each other there. And so the Institutes for the Christian Religion is Calvin's greatest work that he's labored on year after year after year. He sends it, and everybody praises it, everybody loves it. He sends it to Michael Servetus. Servetus devours it, finds all the errors in it, and marks them out in the columns or in the margins along the side and sends it back to John Calvin to show him all of his errors. Calvin flips out. He writes Farrell, Calvin, and he says to him, Servetus has just sent me together with his letters a long volume of his ravings. If I consent, he will come here. But I will not give my word, for should he come, if my authority is of any avail, I will not suffer him to get out alive. Whoa. That's crossing a line. <laughs> and so what happens is, Servetus publishes this new book in uh, 1553. I've got a little picture of the title page there. Christianisme Restitutio. And it's his magnum opus. It's Servetus's final piece. He has a thousand copies secretly printed in Vienne. And he's, he speaks of the Son as eternal and divine in God's intention. And he makes arrangements to sell it at Easter in Italy, Frankfurt, and even in Geneva. He's going to have his book sold in all these different places. And he sent Calvin a final copy of the book. John Calvin, he has a friend who has a cousin who's Catholic and in France, in the city with Servetus. And so Calvin sends over some incriminating evidence for Michael Servetus and gets it to this guy's cousin who is a Catholic and this is, is then turned over to the Catholic Inquisition in France, and before you know it, they're knocking on the door, and Michael Servetus gets arrested by the Catholic Inquisition. Which, if you think about it, is absolutely horrifying, because John Calvin hated the Catholics. He hated the Inquisition. He is the anti-Catholic. He is the Protestant. He's protesting against the Catholics. So he's partnering with the Catholics against Michael Servetus because he wants Michael Servetus dead. And so Calvin sent over some of the handwriting, some samples of Michael Servetus' handwriting to use as evidence against him. Servetus had just long enough to hide all the incriminating evidence in his apartment before they came. And since he was a gentleman of high standing, they didn't put him on maximum security. They put him in minimum security. And so in the early morning on April 7, 1553, Servetus escaped from his confinement and he, made, he headed off to the woods and he got away. And then they the Catholic Inquisition continued with the trial 
And they, in, on June 17th, they convicted Michael Servetus, even though he was already gone, and they burned him in effigy. And for four months, Michael Servetus remained out of sight. He was a wanted man, a hunted man in France. He had to get out of France. And so the goal was to go to Italy. Because as we'll see after the break, in northern Italy, there were some very interesting people who were saying very similar things to what Michael Servetus was saying. But in order to get there, he needed to catch a boat to Zurich. And the place to catch the boat to Zurich was Geneva, Calvin's Geneva. So he went to Calvin's Geneva on a Saturday and had to stay overnight before he could catch this boat. And Sunday came, and in Calvin's Geneva, you went to church. If you stayed home from church, if you were a stranger passing through and you stayed home from church, it would call attention to yourself. So Michael Servetus thinks the best course of action is to go to an afternoon church service and, not, and, and maybe go to a, a, in a disguise, a little bit of a disguise, and show up just to blend in. There happened to be some people there from the city he was from in Lyon, France, that recognized him at the church service in Geneva, and immediately he was arrested. And so John Calvin orders his arrest. Now, in those days, the law was you couldn't arrest a non-citizen. He wasn't a citizen of Geneva. He was from Spain and France and other places. Uh, unless you also went to jail, too. So if, you, if I want to accuse Steve of a crime, I, w I want him to go to jail. i got to go to jail, too, until we get this whole thing sorted out. So it's like it helps people not to start accusing people wildly. I mean, you have to really be committed, because jail in those days was wretched. No sanitation, no electricity, meager rations. I mean, it was really death row. A lot of people died in jail. If you didn't get out quick enough, eventually you would die in jail, at least a lot of times. Okay, so Calvin, not wanting to go to jail himself, gets his servant, a guy named Nicholas de la Fontaine, to accuse Michael Servetus officially and has this La Fontaine go to jail while Calvin's out there preparing the case against him. And so he supplied his servant with evidence against his arguments, and once the evidence was in, the servant was released, and Servetus had to stay in jail. They accused him of Anabaptism, anti-Trinitarianism, pantheism, and psychopanicheism. Whew. Those are some big words there, huh? So this is psychopanicheia, John, one of his first books. And the fine print says, psychopanicheia, or a refutation of the error entertained by some unskillful persons who ignorantly imagine that in the interval between death and the judgment, the soul sleeps together with an explanation of the condition and life of the soul after this present life. This book was against the doctrine of the sleep of the dead. John Calvin attacked that very early on in his career, and he did not like people that believed that dead people were asleep. And so he had written this book in 1534, now it's 1553, and so he's accusing Servetus of that, possibly because of this pulmonary circulation uh, discovery, the idea that the spirit and the breath mixes with the blood and the lungs and that the soul is something that stays in the body until resurrection. Regardless of the case, that's what he accused him of. And so John Calvin is under immense pressure to show the Catholics 
who just burned him in effigy and found him guilty of burning at the stake, that as a Protestant, they take heresy just as seriously as the Catholics do. And so all these letters start coming in from the surrounding cities, from Bern, from Zurich, from Basel, and they're all saying, Servetus is guilty, you gotta do something, you can't, you gotta punish him, it's gotta be severe. There's a trial. Servetus is, is up to bat against the prosecutor, but the prosecutor, doesn't matter who they're gonna put in there, they're not gonna be able to handle Servetus' arguments. We're talking about somebody who can switch between French, which is the language of the city, to Latin, like top shelf Latin, to Hebrew, to Greek, to Latin, just like this, in an argument. How are you going to handle that? There's only one man that can handle that, and that's John Calvin. So eventually, John Calvin has to come out of the shadows and face Servetus head on. And it's like one of these epic battles with the lightsabers, where you have the two, the hero and the anti-hero, going at it. And they both all have the same moves. You know? And they're arguing at such a level about doctrinal subtleties that nobody else in the room even knows what they're talking about. And Michael Servetus and John Calvin are not able to convince each other of anything. And in the end, the jury, or the council, the town council, goes obviously with their chosen man, John Calvin. Servetus's conditions were so bad in jail that he begged them for a change of clothing. Just give me a change of clothing. That's all I want, just a change of clothing. You know, what's it like if you wear the same clothes every day, day after day after day? No shower. What's that, what's that get to be like? He has vermin in the jail. He wants relief from the vermin. The dampness and the cold aggravate his health. He's, he's, he's sick. He's coughing. He's ill. He demands that Calvin be prisoned the same as him. And the council, of course, ignores all these petitions. His prosecutor tries to pin him with subverting social order, Claude Rigaud, leading a dissolute life and affinity with Jews and Turks. Those are three of the things they accuse him of. In the end, they found Michael Servetus guilty of anti-Trinitarianism and Anabaptism. Those are the official charges. This guy had killed no man. He had stolen nothing. He had wronged no one. He had just come to believe that the Trinity was wrong and that following Jesus, like the Anabaptists taught, was right. He wasn't even an Anabaptist. He didn't even believe in the same doctrine of baptism or pacifism like they did. There was just enough similarity there that they pinned it on him. And so he was found guilty in October 26, 1553 and condemned to be burned at the stake. When they condemned him to be burned at the stake, John Calvin suddenly lost his resolve and asked for a, a more merciful sentence than burning at the stake. And they said, no, we're going to burn him at the stake. And so on October 27, 1553, Farrell led him to the place of execution outside the city walls with a, a group of the townsfolks that would go as witnesses. The whole way to the place of his execution, they were whispering in his ear and shouting at him to recant. Just give up this belief. Just give it up. Is it worth your life? Repudiate your theology and save your life. His last recorded words before they lit him on fire with green wood and the last known copy of his book chained to his leg 
along with all the other books surrounding him so that they would be sure that his ideas would perish with him in the flames, was, O Jesus, Son of the Eternal God, have mercy on me. Still, he would not call Jesus the Eternal Son of God. Even with his last breath, he called him, O Jesus, Son of the Eternal God, have mercy on me. And they lit the fire, and Michael Servetus died. A remarkable time they lived in, isn't it? When you could be burned for just questioning these things. I'm just going to pray, and then we'll take a break. Father in heaven, I don't know Michael Servetus' heart. I don't know what his life was like in all its details, but I do know courage when I see it. And I do know someone who stands for biblical truth when I see it. I ask that you help us to take some inspiration from this and from the countless others, from Claudio Savoy, from Adam Pastor, from the many others that, that we'll see, to, to stand up for what we believe in, to stand up for you and for your son. Help us to be people of courage and not cowards. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Quite a testimony, isn't it? Thanks so much for tuning in. Also, just in case you were curious, Servetus's magnum opus was called Christianisme Restitutio, and that is, in fact, where the name for this podcast came from. It's an homage to Servetus's final work that was chained to his leg while he was executed. And, of course, uh, Christianisme Restitutio means, in English, the restoration of Christianity, and that's exactly what we're trying to do here at Restitutio. So just a little insight there for you in case you were curious about the name of this podcast and where it comes from. But stay tuned for next time. You'll learn more about the biblical Unitarian movement in the 16th and 17th centuries as we discuss the Sicinians. Thanks for tuning in, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.